millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A huge thank you to all of the Secret Library podcast patrons including Patty, our incredible benefactor patron, who have all helped us to reach five years of the Secret Library podcast. To celebrate our fifth birthday this April, an exciting announcement. Up until now, our private community, the Secret Library Cafe, has only been open to students in my courses. But now we are opening it up to Footnote subscribers as well. You can sign up at carolinedonahue.com slash footnotes to get weekly writing inspiration in your inbox and gain entry to the most supportive and generous community of writers I have ever met. So go to carolinedonahue.com slash footnotes, sign up, and you'll receive your invitation to join the Secret Library Cafe. This is the Secret Library Podcast. Welcome to Season 4, The Visible Writer. What happens when you say you're a writer out loud for the first time? How does this change your perception of yourself? We'll be exploring these and other questions this season. We are also very, very excited to make this show more visible. If this episode is meaningful to you, please share it with a friend. And leave a review and rating of the show wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you so much. Help us celebrate our fifth birthday. It really means so much and helps these conversations impact even more people. My guest today is Rainer Wynn. Since traveling the Southwest Coastal Path, Rainer Wynn has become a regular long-distance walker and writes about nature, homelessness, and wild camping. Her first book, The Salt Path, was a Sunday Times bestseller and shortlisted for the 2018 Costa Biography Award. In the wild silence, Rainer explores readjusting to life after homelessness. She lives in Cornwall with her husband, Moth. I was absolutely thrilled to get my hands on a copy of The Wild Silence. This book has been really created for us for writers and those of us listening to the show, because in the first book, The Salt Path, that Rainer Wynn wrote, she were with her traveling on the salt path with her husband, Moth, grappling with homelessness. That's the story that she wanted to tell. But the beautiful thing in getting to read The Wild Silence is The Wild Silence is what happened right after It's where she came back from homelessness, began to live in a home again. And as part of this process, she decided to write about the experience on the path. So we get to experience the writing of the salt path from the inside in this book. And not only that, we get to see 
what it was like for her to realize she wanted to write and to deal with the impact of writing something she thought was just for her husband that then ultimately became a published book at a big five publisher that was a bestseller and had her going to things like literary events and having to speak in front of people, things she had never been prepared for up to this point. So this book is really a masterclass in acclimating to being visible as a writer. And I was doing the happy dance when it dropped in my lap as coming out this spring. So I know you'll love the book, but I'm just as excited to share this conversation with you because as always, Rainer, who is a previous guest on the show, is incredibly generous and honest and open. And I know you'll love her as much as I love speaking with her. Here we are with Rainer Wynn. Hi, Rainer. Thank you so much for coming back on. Hi, it's lovely to be here. (laughs) It was such a treat to read this book um, for so many reasons. One was simply that for many of us, it feels like medicine reading a story about someone going anywhere (laughs) at this point. And you were in so many different places with varying levels of challenge throughout the book. And it was just a real pleasure to follow along with you. Yes, it's uh, quite nice just to uh, even mentally be out at the moment, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, absolutely. And I wanted to start because I loved being able to visit through the book some of the stories that you told when we spoke about the salt path, about the process of writing the book, how it became published and how you know, you had no intention of publishing this book. It was a birthday gift. And how much fear you had to face in order to make this book something that everyone got to read. And I'm wondering if you can say more about how that's evolved between when we read about it in the story and how it feels now. Yes, in the story, um, I'm just I'm just putting salt path together. I'm just beginning to think about writing salt path, and, and that in itself was a huge journey because I hadn't written before, um, and I I was really I was just writing that book for Moth. I was writing it for him entirely for him. Um, just as a record of that walk because I wanted him to remember as his memory started to fade I wanted him to remember how important that walk had been to us so from that point from being an incredibly private person writing a book just for Moth um, to now two books later having done such a lot of PR for the books and had to had to face a lot of my personal fears in in being um, a public-facing person, whereas I'd always lived a very private, slightly withdrawn sort of life. Um, It's been a huge, huge journey. Yeah, I think many of us could relate. For those of you, when you read it, there's a beautiful image you have of your younger self hiding behind the couch. And I can certainly relate to that feeling often in social gatherings or places where there are unexpected things going to happen. And yet there was that younger self who dreamed of writing a book. So how did you um, 
how did you get through it? Because it sounded quite scary, like the tense, and I could relate at the literary festival having to go out and thinking no one was going to be there. But there was so much love for this book. That's right. I mean, as a child, I literally did hide behind the sofa every time a stranger came to the house. Um, And I think I carried quite a lot of that with me into my adult life because I always lived a very remote slightly isolated life. Um, So the book was finally found a publisher and I handed over the manuscript and I thought that was the end of the story. I really (laughs) thought the publisher went away, did their magical thing, it appeared on the bookshelves. But then they announced um, that I had to take part in PR. I had to actually go out and talk about the book. Well, I was terrified. I even wanted to get the manuscript back. I was so horrified by the thought of having to go and talk to people about it. And I think I think I managed one or two radio interviews. And then I had to start doing the events, which meant going on stage in front of hundreds of people. And it was so terrifying because there's a point in the wild silence where I'm hiding in the toilet when I should be going on stage and I'm hiding in the toilet because I can't bear the thought of getting on that stage because I can hear the volume of people growing in the hall. Um, But then I forced myself out onto that stage and something started to happen then. It started to happen not just on the stage, but in the signing queues after the events where people were waiting to have their books signed. And completely unexpected, completely not something I was prepared for, people started to tell me their stories and started started to share their experience of how, how they'd gone through some trauma in life and maybe found their way back, or how reading my story had helped them face their own fears or their own problems and and then in the in the weeks and months after the salt path was published i started to receive letters and messages from people letters of people sharing the most personal moments in their lives where i I think i came to realize then that that actually we're all so similar we all share so many of the same emotions and the same fears and that there aren't many of us that actually make it through life without everything falling apart one way or another, financially, health-wise, emotionally. You know, we all go through it one way or another. And there was something shared in that. And I think that started to help me out, help me out from behind the sofa, really. Yeah, there was a there was a beautiful moment also where you described connecting with your neighbour. Uh, when you lived at the Abbey and that there was this description of being at a fork where you had to decide because there was this whole period living, having had these experiences on the path where people were judgmental and horrible when hearing the truth of your story and then feeling like if these people find out, it's going to be a disaster. And then you took a risk and told her and were met with acceptance and I'm wondering if if that was the point also if that was the transformational point to to have that experience and then all of these people following up later absolutely it was um we moved into the village after we finished the walk we moved into a village and we were living at the back of a chapel um I'd never lived in a village before I'd always lived on a farm or in a very rural place so to find myself among people all the time um I found it a really difficult situation and I 
Oh, time passed, quite a lot of time passed. I mean, it's probably nearly a year. And I realised I probably said nothing other than hello to anybody in the village in nearly a year. And, um, and that actually was, was quite a long time to not be talking to anyone. Um, but there came a moment one day when I, I'd been walking on the coast path, came back down into the village, and I started to talk to a neighbour. And... Um, and I realised that I had to stop hiding from, from what had happened to us, stop fearing, um, because I would meet the same reaction that we did when we were walking, when people found that we'd been homeless, um, and just be brave enough to say, this is who I am, and this is what I am. And uh, in that moment, I did that, and the reaction was not what I expected. It was one of, we all go through it. We all go through something. All of us get to a point in life where we have to have to readdress how we go forwards, and and that moment then gave me the courage to go actually back into the chapel that moment and start to look for a publisher for the book. Um, it gave me the courage to think, yes, I, I I can be brave enough to go forwards, and then, as you said, followed by all those messages and interaction with so many people. There was a bit um, in the book, I loved it so much. I mean, there were so many moments in it I really loved, but this particular paragraph just gave me chills because it made me think of all of the students who have been at the precipice of thinking about writing or they've been secretly writing. And then you um, at a gathering said something and we're having these thoughts after the fact. So thank you for giving me permission to read this bit because I, I just want to hear more about this moment where you are thinking to yourself, I'm thinking of writing. How could I have said those words out loud? Said them to people I hardly knew or was likely to know. Words I'd hardly dare to say to myself or formulate to moth. I walked back to the village across the cliffs as a cargo ship left the river mouth heavy in the water. A lesson learned. I wouldn't mention writing again. I couldn't tarnish the thought by letting it be anything more than a dream, a secret to keep for myself. I, I just can think of so many people who've been in this position where writing being a dream that you don't actually pursue, you don't actually tarnish with the reality of going forward. And yet you did go forward. And I'm interested in what the differences are between the secret that you imagined it could be and the reality that it's turned out to be. Yes, that, that moment, uh, that moment was, uh, was so full of so many emotions for me. I think when I was a child, when I was a small child, I really thought I was going to grow up to be a writer. And I was going to have a penguin on the spine of my book. And um, that was my dream. But then, you know, life gets in the way. It takes you down other routes. And I didn't write. I didn't write anything at all. But then I'd sat alone writing The Salt Path. Moth didn't even know I was writing it. Nobody knew I was writing it. I was writing it for me to give to him. And... And I was creating it entirely. I was creating my own world of, of recreating that time on the path. And I hadn't shared it with anyone. Um, and so suddenly there for it to have come out of my mouth at that gathering to say, I'm thinking of writing. Even those words, I'm thinking of writing. 
um, even though I had actually secretly already written it, um, it almost was as if by it coming out of my mouth, I was taking something away from, from this little dream that I'd created because by sharing it, I was opening it up to everybody's own thoughts, to their criticisms, to their, yeah, as I said, that they would tarnish it, that they would take away that little dream of that, that little thing that was mine and it would be ruined because I'd know that it was rubbish and I'd know that nobody would ever want to even read it. Um, and so all that self-doubt that I'm sure everybody feels was was huge. It was It was like the weight of that cargo ship going out of the river. But by then... It had gone out of the river because I'd said it. I'd said I'm thinking of writing. So that ship had already sailed because I'd I'd already said it. Um, I hadn't even said it to Moth, but I'd said it there to virtual strangers. And there was something in that moment of having said it that started to make it real, but also in my head started to diminish it at the same time because it was going to then be subject to all those all those external forces that might change it, might lessen it. And I didn't want anything to take away from the experience of that walk that that book I'd written held. And I didn't want anything to take that from me because it was the one, the one shining thing at the end of a really difficult time in our lives. Um, well, I'd said it and it was out there. <laughs> And no going back from that. <laughs> exactly. I think that's in some ways that's sort of the magic. I almost picture like glitter coming out and around as you said it to them because then everything happened and the book came out. And then things started to happen because of the book, like you heard from Sam. And I'm I'm so fascinated by the doubt that we all feel and we think that we're doing something wrong by putting a book out there. And then with your story, it's so easy to see the incredible benefit that came to so many people from you taking that risk. Can you say something about your meeting with Sam who read your book and thought maybe you and Moth could participate in his dream? Yes, well, as part of the PR for for the Salt Path, um, the publishers wanted me to take part in you know social media, Instagram, Twitter. I'd never even looked at social media. I didn't. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to how to deal with it. Anything. So I opened a Twitter account, and you know, and someone got in touch with me and said, "Can I have your phone number?" So I gave him my phone number. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that what you do? <laughs> I know. And your children freaked out. <laughs> what are you doing, Mum? You can't give people your number. But I've done it by then, so it's too late. Anyway, Sam called me. And um, it turned out that Sam was somebody who'd read The Salt Path. And he'd connected with it on such a personal level, so many parts of that story, that he felt he had to get in touch. And he had, he said, a ruined cider farm just a few miles away from where we were living uh, a really historic cider farm but one that had been neglected or badly overused for many years but he had this dream that he would be able to restore it to its former glory to to bring back the biodiversity and with that all the wildlife to hedgerows where there were 
very little other than a, a couple of sparrows and a crow. Um, and that was his dream. And he'd read the salt path and really believed that Moth and I were, were the people to help him achieve that, to help him fulfil that goal. And would we like to go and live at the farm and, and help him make that a reality? Well, what do you say? What, what <laughs> could I possibly say? It, it would have given us everything that we really felt at that point that we needed in life to be back out in the natural world, living as part of nature every day, to be, to be working on the land again. Um, and it was something we desperately wanted. But how could we do it? Because to do that, to actually say yes to Sam, we would have to get over such a huge barrier because we would have to put our trust in Sam in order to do that. And trust was something that we had lost along the way. You know, we trusted our friend in a financial deal that had seen us losing our house. Um, people that we'd met along the way, on the path, had reacted so badly to us that we'd sort of withdrawn. We'd, we'd lost that instant sense of belief in human nature that, that we, you know, most of us have. And so we would have to overcome that huge barrier in order to be able to take up his offer. So we, we hesitated for months because we couldn't, we couldn't bring ourselves to, to make that huge leap of faith that it would take to do it. And then... I, I think that this is such a theme through the whole book as well, this idea of trust. You know, can I trust myself to tell this story? Can I trust myself to be a writer? Can we trust Sam to move on to this farm? Can I trust my muscles and my joints to take me across this path in Iceland later? And how have you seen your relationship with trust change um, through the writing of the book and and beyond it's such a difficult thing isn't it trust it's such an elusive concept really it's um it's not something that we think about um i think i had no no trust issues whatsoever before before we lost our house but then everything started to erode everything that surrounds trust really we lost our house we lost just about every material thing that we had moth's illness I couldn't even trust that we would be together into the future. I couldn't trust myself to be able to pick that rucksack up and, and walk those miles. Um, and I certainly didn't trust other people anymore because everyone I met wasn't, wasn't, um, wasn't giving me reason to trust them, to be honest. Um, so, so to try to trust in anything again was a really, really difficult hill to climb. I think the very basis of that was trusting myself, trusting ourselves. And the path gave us that. It gave us the, the very ground level building blocks of rebuilding trust in ourselves because we found that we could put that rucksack on, we could walk those miles, we could sleep wild and, and be hungry and still survive. We could walk up that headland, although it seemed utterly impossible at the bottom. And moth could keep going. And 
And those things started to build a base layer of trust because you can't trust other people if you don't trust yourself. And, and then after time, slowly, everything else started to rebuild. You put yourselves in quite a dramatic situation. It was so suspenseful um, going to Iceland and I didn't know actually that the seasons shift like on a dime, like they appear to from the, you know, the end of August is like, oh, and now it's winter. And I thought it was really poetic and beautiful and also terrifying that you put yourselves in a situation where you were right up against the line of the seasons. And in a way you removed the option, like we have to keep going. And it was sort of like a, a a quest for the truth of being able to trust yourselves. Did it feel like that in the moment? It did in a lot of ways, because I think just the idea of going for another big walk was, was about Moth testing whether he could trust his body. Um, his health had improved when we walked on the coast path, and then it had deteriorated quite a bit. So there was that sense of, if I walk again, will my health improve? Can I trust my body to take me forwards again? Um, and that was the, the premise on which we left. We had no idea about the season shifting at that point. <laughs> we left the UK at the end of August in a heat wave. It was so hot. We got to Iceland and there was a sort of 20 degree shift and everyone started to say, oh, but it's the end of summer on Saturday and on Sunday it will be winter. And we thought, what nonsense. And so we happily got onto the bus, this off-road bus that took us four hours into, into this incredible landscape of the southern highlands of Iceland. Four hours across lava flows and ash fields and, and a landscape that seemed like something completely alien. And then it dropped us at this place called Landmannalauga, which is a place name on a map, but it certainly shouldn't be because really all it is is it's, it's a few tents gathered around a shed and an old bus at the head of an extinct lava flow. And, and then the bus drove away and we were there. We were there. We had to do this. We had to walk through along these two trails through really what turned out to be quite difficult landscape through volcanoes and ash fields. And there was a sense of once we committed to it, we had to keep going because to get out would have been a quite a difficult, a difficult thing to do. So, so there was a huge amount of trust involved in that. Um, and in the first couple of days, uh, um, a huge sense of what on earth are we doing? We should not be here. Um, <laughs> but, but again, actually, the absolute beauty of that landscape started to wipe away any fear or doubt. And all we were doing was just being in the moment in, in a landscape that's like walking through evolution, really. And it it was just such a remarkable experience then that, that any doubts, any fears just melted away and we just lived in the moment of, of such a spectacular place. That brings up another theme that runs through both of your books, and that is the profound love you both have for the natural world and the respect that you feel for it. And the sort of larger context of 
being a human out in the natural world and how healing the natural world is despite what we continue to do to it. And I'm wondering just about how how it feels or how it helps to feel like a very small being in the center of something larger, because you describe that so beautifully throughout both books. I think when when Moth and I were first together, um, we both had this unexpected love of the natural world. I'd grown up on a farm, but had a very almost sort of rural sense of, of what nature was. Uh, a sort of domestic almost sense of it. Um, but Moth, although he lived on the edge of a town, he had a real passion for the mountains, for the wild places. And um, so our first few years together were, were out discovering the mountains of Scotland and, and the Lake District. And we had some very, very strange experiences, quite scary experiences in, in those places. Once when we, we were two miles up on the side of a mountain um, and a storm came in and ripped our tent away and we spent the night in a plastic survival bag on the side of a mountain in a storm like nothing I've ever seen where there was water coming up, water falling down, like balls of water all around us and wind. It, it was like nothing I've ever experienced before or since. And we spent hours just lying on that mountainside in a plastic bag as it filled with water. And we, we just tipped on the edge of hypothermia. But there was something about that night. I mean, really, probably it should have driven most sane people to never go back into that situation again. But it had done something to us, I think. I think it had given us a real sense of being part of nature, not alongside it, not separate from it but as much part of nature as the, as the rain falling or the, or the birds trying to find shelter. And, and something in that grew through our time together then. So that when we came to be on the coast path, um, living wild as we did, we weren't, we weren't observers of the natural world. We weren't um, people recording things that we were seeing. We were recording something that we were part of, recording the fact that we were as vulnerable as all the rest of the wildlife around us. And I think I think this time, I don't know how it's been with you, but we've been we've spent a lot of time over the last year locked down. So mm -hmm. within our homes or within our, our locality. And it's given us all a, a time to to look at nature differently. Time to open a window and hear the birds sing in ways that maybe you can't normally because of traffic noise. And I think we've all realized how important just getting out for that daily walk has been to us. Um, but I think in that, you know, there is something else to learn. That those, we, are, we are as vulnerable to what's happening to the climate as those birds in the hedgerows, those, those insects and, and the wildlife that is starting to disappear from our, from our landscape, one day that will be us if we don't address the climate issue because we are organic beings, just the same as those birds. We're not something that is so powerful that climate change is not going to affect us. We are as vulnerable to it as, as that yellow hammer in the hedgerow that there are only a few of them left. It's the same. We are. We are the same. And I think. I think um, 
we we really have to realise that before we can address this as urgently as we need to. This was something that I took from the story also, that this message comes through, even though it isn't a book expressly about that. And there was such a a beautiful message of taking care of the farm and removing all of the detritus and obstacles and things from it and that the land started to heal itself when we got out of the way. It felt a little bit like when Moth was able to be a part of that and be on the path and be out and be part of nature instead of separate from it, that there was a regeneration there as well. And so how is the how is the land now? Is it continuing? I wanted to know um, how the farm continued to be. That's right. Um, well, it was such a state when we came here. It had been heavily overused um, agriculturally. Um, and there was hardly any wildlife here, hardly anything. And a lot of, of agricultural detritus poisoning the land, really. So we've spent the first couple of years just trying to clear that, trying to clear that and to to not use the land so heavily, so less stocking of the land. And just within this short time, the, the wildlife has started to come back. There have been clouds of insect life over the last summer, last year, pollinators and, and butterflies things that definitely weren't here before. And with those have come all manner of bird life. Things that, are, that, like I said, when we first came, there were just a few sparrows squabbling and, and two crows, and that was just about it. But now, now there are birds that, that are on the edge of extinction. There are, there are birds in, in huge droves. There are deer and there are badgers and there are Wildlife of all manner has come so quickly. And as you said, to, to watch that happen has been quite a surprise that it's happened so quickly. Because we have, it's not really what we've done, it's what we haven't done. It's by taking that really heavy, almost industrial agricultural use away from the land and using it in a more gentle way. The land has, has found a way to heal itself. And as you said, the same as when Moth was walking. And he was living in a, in a more natural state. How his health had started to improve in ways we'd been told were impossible. And there's a huge parallel there, I think. Um, that actually, what we all need, what the land needs, what this earth needs, is to be treated in a more natural state and to stop treating ourselves and and the earth as an industrial unit you know we have to be a little bit kinder to ourselves and this planet and it's maybe not too late I hope not and I would say the same was the case for you with your writing self that by being kinder to yourself and and trusting and seeing the possibilities when sharing this story that the story was also able to regenerate hope in all of the people who read it, as well as those that you connected with as a result. That's right, it did. Um, I think that path had given us so many things. Um, we, we met this old couple, this two old gentlemen when we were walking, oh, um, yeah. who came up from a path below and they were carrying a, 
a tub of blackberries and offered us a blackberry from their tub. Well, I didn't want to take one because ones we'd eaten to that point were so sharp and tart. But I took one just to be polite. And I bit into this blackberry and it was the most perfect purple autumnal flavour that you can imagine. And, you know, I said, what is this? Is this some rare species from down in a a cove? And this... uh, this old man said, no, this is something so special. This is what you get when the mist comes in and lays a layer of salt on a perfectly ripe blackberry. It's a lightly salted blackberry. It's something chefs can't create and money can't buy. It's a gift of time and nature. Well, I took that. I took that from, from that um walk and I held that like some sort of like a little jewel of of something that had mattered so much because that's what that walk had felt like to me it had felt like a gift so when I started to write about it I wanted to portray that feeling of what that walk had given me that sense of how time spent in nature had felt like a gift like a healing gift almost and and in writing it in a time when I was really at one of my most anxious and, and untrusting and withdrawn points in my life, um, by writing about it, it was almost as if I gave it back to myself. It was almost by putting myself back on the path, I, I re-felt the strength that the path had given me and, and it gave me back what it had actually given me when I was physically walking on it. And I think now, having talked to so many people who've read the book and and felt some connection to the book, but what I felt when I was writing it, other people feel when they read it. So, so maybe it, it's it's a shared experience with my readers. Maybe together we've gone on a journey through that book, um, and maybe together we're out the other side. <laughs> I think so. I think so. It is, both of them are tremendous gifts and it's such a treat to be able to discuss them with you and to have this time together. Thank you so, so much for sharing a little bit more about the experience of writing both The Salt Path and The Wild Silence. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. We hope you've enjoyed this week's show. You can keep the conversation going by leaving a comment in the show notes at secretlibrarypodcast.com or visit us on Facebook at facebook.com slash secretlibrarypodcast. You can also connect directly with me on Twitter or Instagram where I'm Caro Donahue. That's at C-A-R-O-D-O-N-A-H-U-E. I look forward to chatting with you there. See you next week. Until then, happy writing.